This is the only thing I've eaten all day except for four soft pretzels and four cups of coffee. Oh, Jesus. You must be starving. Uh, kind of feeling like shaky and sick, but yeah, also hungry. Yeah. It's uh, a good way to read theory. You know, you got to be a little delirious. <laughs> That's what Marx would have done. That's what he, yeah. There's that story about why he keeps talking about a coat. You heard this about the pawn shop? So he keeps using linen and coats to talk about economics because he was constantly trading his coat to a pawnbroker and sitting in the library just freezing and thinking about how he wanted his coat so bad. So he kept talk, thinking about how the, much the coat was actually worth because he had to keep <laughs> rebuying the same coat over and over and over again. No wonder he was a fucking maniac. Do we want to get into it then? Try to keep this to like an hour and a half or so. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll see. <laughs> it's only four, it's only three and a half pages. Although Levi, you wrote another fucking two in your comments. So. <laughs> also, you fucker, you're going to have to define what ecumenical means because I don't even know what that means. Note taken. So hello and welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with the boys, Levi and Steve. And we've also got Mike from Turn Leftist. How y'all doing tonight, guys? Good. How's it going? Doing great. Dealing with this so-called global warming over here. I mean, it snowed again, so we can just dispense with that notion, can't we? I mean, I broke my radiator yesterday, so I'm here in the cold. Yeah, Use some global warming over here. Debunked. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we just need to drop some more bombs and maybe global warming will come back. Oh, wait, we're doing it. I mean, at this rate, we may be headed for like nuclear winter. We have not only global warming, but global war at this rate. Yeah. Yep. But nuclear winter counteract global warming? It's our only hope. <laughs> Here comes a fucking article in the nation about that. The benefits of nuclear winter to stop climate change? <laughs> the consequences of an apocalyptic nuclear war may not be as bad as some think. You need to throw in there a bunch of anti-China and Russian statements surrounding it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming they get obliterated, we might be okay. How Russia stands to benefit from global warming <laughs> and nuclear winter. Yeah. Wait, Why you, were, you did a Dr. Strangelove episode, didn't you? You were on that, right? That wasn't me. It was, oh. I, I was on that. Okay, my bad. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. Oh my I was going to say, it just sounds a lot like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I've seen enough horrible mainstream headlines in the past three months. I don't know that we need to create too many more of our own. <laughs> but... I don't know. But yeah, obviously we're referencing the uh, bombing campaign launched by the decrepit corpses of the U.S. and U.K. empires on Yemen. So solidarity with Ansar Allah and the Yemeni people. I'm sure that'll come up at some point during the discussion tonight. But I do want to get into it a little bit. Um, so tonight we're going to be kind of taking a page out of Professor Levi's book and doing another theory piece. So I love Lenin. We all love Lenin. I wanted to do a little bit of work on Lenin tonight. Don't we folks, we love him. We, we love him, folks. We love him. Best Bolshevik. That's what I say. He's the best yeah. Bolshevik that ever lived. Yep. Lenin. 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 <laughs> anyway, 
So in June of 1920, Vladimir Lenin, aided as ever by his brilliant wife Krupskaya, published his draft theses on the national question in the lead up to the Second Congress of the Communist International, which was set to begin in July of that year. This iteration of the International was the third such formation. The second fell apart in 1916 during the outbreak of World War I, when many socialist parties, such as the German Social Democrats, elected to support their nation's own bourgeoisie in the imperialist world war rather than support the international working class. By 1920, the Bolsheviks neared turning the tide against the Tsarists and their imperial allies during the Russian Civil War and were on the path toward the establishment of the USSR in 1922. Unfortunately, the German Revolution, on which the hopes of Bolshevik security so long rested, had not been successful. The Fry Corps drowned the communist uprising in the aftermath of World War I in blood, murdering Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and quelling the revolt by 1919. This provided the space for the German Social Democrats to birth the ill-fated Weimar Republic. I'm going to take this chew out. I don't know if you want to correct that, but it's the Weimar Republic. The Weimar if it, Republic. If it deserves any respect. Not in America, buddy. It's the Weimar. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he said it with chew in his mouth, too. Yeah. <laughs> Big old dip and a cowboy's hat on. <laughs> I just need a Miller Lite. Anyway. Furthermore, the cataclysm of the war broke many of the imperial powers. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Tsarist Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the Second Reich lay shattered. On the other hand, though battered by years of fighting, France, Britain, and the Dutch retained many of their colonial possessions and even strengthened their hand in various geographies such as the Mediterranean, the Middle East, Southwest Asia, and Africa. I think that's the whole world outside of North America. <laughs> Well, in South America, but that's a different story, the Monroe Doctrine and all that. But speaking of the United States, they <laughs> did come late to the party and they emerged relatively unscathed, but as a bona fide military force on the world stage, paving the way for a dark imperial future and vomit inducing revisionist claims to a World War I victory. Back to back World War champs. <laughs> It is with these conditions in the back of our minds that we must understand Lenin's draft theses on the national question, in which he sought to lay out a program and framework for how the workers and oppressed peoples of the world could unite. As no immediate help came from the European proletariat, and the imperialist hostilities to the Bolsheviks' new worker state never ceased, it became clear to Lenin that the Soviet state would have to seek allies elsewhere. As such, his eye turned more and more as his tragically short life wore on to the colonized and semi-colonized world, China, India, the Levant, and beyond. In summary, the theses lay out a 13-point program that the Communist International could use as a guide to support national liberation struggles in the colonized world. Lenin recognized that the contradictions and underdevelopment imposed by colonialism complicated the idea of the global proletariat uniting. In many cases, the working class failed to emerge as a force due to underdevelopment, or overexploitation, as Parenti would say. Peasants grew to represent the class with the most revolutionary potential in some instances, as discovered by Mao in China and Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, among many others. Lenin also explained that the communists should form temporary alliances with the revolutionary elements of a given national bourgeoisie, without capitulation to bourgeois ideology, which is obviously very complex. 
In these cases, the strategies and levels of support had to be scrutinized and criticized heavily and constantly. The point being, revolutionaries must formulate a long-term strategy based on the actual facts on the ground and concrete conditions, not utopian idealist notions. With all this being said, as Lenin himself advocated, any piece of theory, even more so for one over 100 years old, must be interrogated, critiqued, and revised if it is to be applied to a contemporary context. However, the foundations of Leninism remain as relevant as ever. We still live in a world dominated by imperialism, where nations of people the world over seek to throw off the yoke of colonialism and bury it once and for all. As such, the national question is of extreme importance still. A liberation struggle raging in Palestine since 1947 has forced the world to pay attention to it, as the Zionist regime perpetuates a genocide on the dole of Uncle Sam. And while I don't think a fully articulated Marxist-Leninist grounding is required to support Palestine's right to resist genocide and occupation, I do think this might be a useful exercise to sharpen our line politically and theoretically now and in the fights to come. So with all that said, I'm Nick here with my comrades Steve, Levi, and Mike, and let's all start just by establishing a baseline on what we understand national self-determination to mean. Can I just do a real quick uh, shout out? Thank you for referencing foundations of Leninism in the first line of that last paragraph there. Oh yeah. You got it, buddy. That was for you. <clears throat> Appreciate it. <laughs> I guess we're going to probably spend a lot of this episode even defining what the nation is or what the national is. But self-determination seems a little more straightforward, but I guess it's also complicated in itself to say who has the right to define their portion or their part within a nation. So that's a big question you asked right at the beginning there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if, it, if we just lay out some more questions that we need to come back and answer later, I mean, that's okay here too. Yeah, so I guess I already asked one, who is the self that gets to determine what a nation is? I also think by far the most interesting thing that we're going to be doing tonight is trying to relate any of these concepts to current events, because <laughs> it's, it's going to be the thorniest of territory and it's going to be the greatest when we try to, uh, because of course all the, um, what do you call them, rad libs, all the people who are just like not as cool as us, who just aren't as principled as us basically, um, are going to try to throw things in our faces when we cite what we think are very obvious principles for the national question to defend Palestinians, but then also to defend Ukrainians from the interference of the West, not necessarily like Russia, but the interference of NATO. Um, because I think that's where it gets thorny. Like people will ask us, like, how could you so very obviously defend the nationalism of the Palestinian people when they're being invaded and then say that it should be different in any way when Ukraine is invaded by Russia? It's like, well, how long ago was Ukraine invaded by the West and taken over as a puppet state? before like the very obvious invasion that you're seeing now that gets publicized in front of your eyes. But like, I don't, I don't want to like, I really wanted to like wait a little while before I got into the, the tanky shit, but like it's, it's in everything. It's literally in every single conflict we're encountering in every day, in every conversation that we're having, we're following around world affairs. When we talk about geopolitics, like it's, it's all the things. Yeah. And I, I think it's, there's a lot of desire, especially from what I look at online to have like a straight theoretical line to have a predetermined answer based on something so ephemeral rather than the material history of the people, of the place, of what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. Like a people can have a claim to 
national self-determination in one period in history, and those relatively same group of people could lose that right to claim self-determination if you're looking ahead 200 years. Like, there's no straight answer to who deserves national self-determination without looking at the actual material of who these people are and what are they asking for. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned everything globally, but the same question would, I, I think there's how many different nations of, of indigenous Native Americans that would ask the same question? Don't they have self-determination to define their nation or state or whatever you want to call it, you know? I think we still call them nations, and I, they have, what, effectively no self-determination as things stand in this country? Yeah. No, absolutely. So, I mean, I think we're kind of getting around to this idea that to define national self-determination, we need to understand what a nation is and have a conversation about that a little bit. And I think all of you guys brought up points that really drive this home or drive this idea home that we need to think about what a nation is, I think, beyond the context of a state. I think in my head, especially early on in my political development, especially as I was younger, right? I think that the idea of a state and the idea of a nation got conflated in my head. It's like, oh, this is a nation. The United States is a nation. But the United States is a state with many different nations, nationalities of people within it, right? And so I think we have to keep that in mind as we're assessing these different things. And Levi, I want to get to you, but just this you know, Mike, you brought up the Ukraine question, right? And I think to Levi's point earlier, if we're looking at concrete conditions on the ground and the historical context of Eastern Ukraine, you could make a good argument that there is like a distinct, maybe more Russian nation in Eastern Ukraine. Mm. So, I mean, Dan Kavalik made the point on the podcast with us, you know, when we I asked him directly because, you know, there is a there is an instance here where the liberals throw that back in our faces. Well, what about national self-determination for Ukraine? And Dan kind of came back and said, like, well, what about national self-determination for the people of the Donbass? And now it gets complicated because, you know, in a world of states like is everybody going to break away? So it's all very complex, I guess, is the, is the short answer. And I don't know if we're going to get to a good definition other than just having like a conversation. I mean, the easiest response to that, if you want to just like, I don't know, if you have to form a response to like the, the, the I don't know, the, um, what do we call them? Like the shadow liberal, like the ghost man on third that we're always arguing with. Um, it's just say like it's actually good if any country is removed of their U.S. NATO influence because that that puts them on the back foot of having to defend the U.S. military industrial complex and its imperialism around the world, the 900 military bases that we all just kind of take for granted in the West, and not say something racist. Like, how does anyone defend the post World War II global order with the U.S. at the helm of it? as the world police that no one wants, that literally the people in those countries do not want, and people in the U.S. have been joking about for our entire lives that they just do not want. Like, the Republicans don't want it, the, the liberals don't want it. How do they justify that without saying something along the lines of, oh, these brown people simply can't manage a democracy or can't have, like, their own nationality and just cannot manage to have a liberal democracy without us instilling that uh, rules-based order upon them. It's right. like, it's so fucking racist on its face if you just start talking about the things that people just take for granted. And 
I, I think it would, yeah, just say it actually would be good if somebody else invaded, if North Korea invaded South Korea and removed um, the, what keeps it as a client state of the U.S. It would be good if China reinvaded Japan or something like I don't, I don't know, like or not, not even reinvade, just invaded Japan and, and because all these states are client states of the U.S. and people just either don't understand it or they ignore that kind of relationship that all these countries have to this complex. It would actually be good if that ended. And then you'd have to prove that whoever is doing the invading is going to instill something just as bad. And that that's left. That's left to be imagined. Like, we don't have that world order yet. We don't have the, the good multipolarity, but we can wish for it. Sorry, Steve, I went on a long rant there. <laughs> oh, no problem. Um, no, I was just going to say, you know, Nick, you mentioned Ukraine. And I, th I think parts of Ukraine, as we talked about with, um, with Dan... There's certain areas that I think major the majority of people would consider themselves Russian or, or otherwise, right? I think a really complex situation on the nation-state question, and this isn't going to be very nuanced. I think we'll get into this a lot more as we go into our series about Northern Ireland. Is Northern Ireland because you mm -hmm. have, you know, you have a you know, it'll be very clear when we do our thing that we think Ireland should be unified, but there's still a percentage of people in Northern Ireland that are unionists and consider themselves British. So then the question becomes like, what, what do you do with those people? So again, it, it, <laughs> it can be really complex in a very small area, I think as well. Well, you uh, guys have done a lot of work setting up a bunch of rakes for me to step on there. <laughs> those people should start their cars, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. But... So I'm going to do the academic thing here and avoid all of them. By bringing back the question of what is national self-determination by pointing out that that's really a question of the 19th and 20th century. That, that was the question that Woodrow Wilson is kind of formulating with the creation of the League of Nations. And to sort of pull in some threads that you guys were all speaking around, it is this idea that basically brown people are not capable of determining their own national identity. And it's even more complicated when you look at who did Woodrow Wilson even consider to be brown. Uh, so he actually considered Arabs to be white. And he recommended that they have self-determination. They were capable of forming their own countries. Uh, and you can look up what's called the King Crane Commission, which was commissioned by Wilson in 1919. And it might be the only instance in world history where an imperial power actually sent in advisors to speak to the leaders and the people of the nations or the peoples of, you know, now we're getting into what is a nation, but peoples in the Levant and ask them what kind of government they wanted to form. And this commission actually detailed how they believed, and this is looking specifically at what we now call Syria, that these Syrians were capable of governing themselves and did not need imperialism. How kind of them to make that determination. It's like the right. Ur white privilege, like these goddamn Caucasus mountains. Fuck you guys. Like. <laughs> no, exactly. Even in the story, like it's, it's horribly imperialist and condescending. Yeah. Yet it's who is capable of defining themselves? Who is the self? And according to Woodrow Wilson, it was white people. And according to Woodrow Wilson, Arabs were white. So they should have had their own nation. He was against the mandate system of Sykes-Picot. Yeah. I think it is important to recognize, though, that in the years afterward, and I understand the roots of the concept are very bad, but like I think it has become 
and I'm trying to take this from listening to other people, um, but it has become more of a universally applied kind of concept, I think. I mean, you hear indigenous nations talking about self-determination for the nation. You hear the black nation here talking about self-determination. You hear, you know, China standing up for the Chinese nation, you know. So regardless, that's kind of the world we live in. And I still do think it's kind of an appropriate term to talk about. Mm hmm in our modern context, because it has been adopted for better or for worse. Um, before I do want to move on to the questions <laughs> at some point, but I think, you know, just to kind of reinforce some other points, um, just because we are talking about Lenin, Mike, you touched on this and you've all brought this up, but it makes it so difficult because we are living in the age of imperialism and we're living in the age of imperialism in which U.S. hegemony dominates. And I think why Marxists have to take this question so seriously and maybe even on a face without like a real deep dive analysis, we may appear to be almost against self-determination. Again, when you see you have like a astroturfed liberation struggle that's been backed by the U.S. backing like this nation allegedly trying to, you know, break out of a country. Right. But essentially in the world of in a world dominated by U.S. imperialism. I mean, that just creates like a weaker state. And again, we've talked about balkanization on this podcast before, right? But again, it's easier for the hegemons to manage these little discrete states. And I'm not like against national self-determination at all. But again, it just requires like a deep analysis of all the geopolitics involved. Not that we here on this podcast have any say ultimately in what happens anyway, <laughs> but I'm ultimately talking about like when we're in our political movements and the political movements to come, how we speak about these things, you know, and how we center, you know, especially here, the U S as the prime aggressor, the prime antagonist against true national self-determination and the fight for a world where nations don't actually matter anymore. Cause that's ultimately what we want to get to, but we still have to deal with the reality where they do, because it is a very important concept to people still. Yeah. Yeah, just to put a really fine point on it to bring back bring back to the Ukraine thing since you brought it up again, Nick. Just remind people when they accuse you of being like a Putin simp or like you're just like a fucking um, two pats on adjacent, like you're just apologizing for Putin or something, like you're just loving Russia. And they remind you, like, you know, Russia's not a communist, right? That's my favorite thing. It's like, yes, I know Russia is not fucking communist anymore. Thank you very much. I'm sure Putin hates gay people. Um, <laughs> just like remind them that the the order that they want to go back to, like, if they say that they're opposing, opposing Russian imperialism, they want to go back to the normal, quote unquote, normal order of Ukraine being a literal puppet state of the U.S., like having military bases in Ukraine and controlling their elections, like outright, like just saying that, like, just go listen to fucking Ben Norton or any of his episodes. He plays that Victoria Newland clip like too much. Like I'm actually sick of hearing that clip on his yeah. show. He plays it so often, but like Yats is our guy. <laughs> Yats is definitely the guy. <laughs> we get it, bro. But no, I mean, he's right to do it. Like that stuff has to be repeated over and over again. And that's all we can do is repeat it to the people who refuse to hear it because we are facing just the weapons of mass destruction lies on that level over and over again on a daily basis when it comes to Israel, when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to Yemen, when it comes to everything else. Um, so that's all we can really do is point that out that the normal natural world order that, they say, that these liberals seem to want to go back to when they oppose the Chinese or Russian imperialism is U.S. imperialism with the, with the military bases there, with our guys in power wherever we want. Right. No, absolutely. All right. So on that note, 
Let's get into Stalin a little bit. We're not even getting to the Lenin text quite yet, <laughs> but I still do think we haven't resolved what a nation actually is, or at least come to some kind of understanding for our purposes here today. So I'd like to turn to Stalin, as I said, in his 1913 short theoretical essay, Marxism and the National Question for a Working Definition of the Nation. So as anything written in this time, it cannot be divorced from the context of the impending world war the solidification of imperialism in Western Europe, and the breaking of the feudal order in East Europe and Russia. Notice I'm being very Eurocentric in my framing here, but that's what Stalin would have understood, right? Mm. So this passage from Stalin, I think, helps explain his impetus for writing. And he says, quote, The mounting wave of militant nationalism above in the series of regressive measures taken by the powers that be in vengeance on the border regions for their quote-unquote love of freedom evoked an answering wave of nationalism below, which at times took the form of crude chauvinism. The spread of Zionism among the Jews, the increase of chauvinism in Poland, pan-Islamism among the the Tartars. I think those are things that are interchangeable, right? Yeah. The spread of nationalism among the Armenians, Georgians, and Ukrainians, and the general swing of the Philistine towards anti-Semitism. All these are generally known facts. So, if I can, I guess, try to summarize quickly, he's talking about the powers above, right? The, the ruling classes. And again, there's still some aristocratic elements in power at this time are weaponizing nationalism above as kind of like a, again, in a preparation for war kind of state, right? Like where they're ginning people up to fight for their own nation. Mm-hmm. And that is sweeping into the masses below, where even among the people, these sentiments of a chauvinistic nationalism, not a nationalism that we would consider to be desirable, maybe even just temporarily um, among the masses themselves. So anyway, that's, again, just some context for, I guess, his impetus for writing. And he goes on later to define a nation as, quote, a historically constituted stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture. Now, I only use this because I think it to be a good understanding of the nation as it would have been understood by the Bolsheviks and many Marxists at the time. With that said, do we think this is a serviceable definition for our purposes here, again, discussing Lenin and trying to update it? And is there anything we would add, update, revise for our modern context? Again, Still not getting quite to the Lenin text, but for anybody out there that's listening that's a little squeamish that we're quoting Stalin, uh, I got somebody a little more academic for your ears. So Benedict Anderson, in his landmark 1983 text, Imagine Communities, attempted to define the nation by asking why people are willing to this day to die for the concept of a country. He defined the nation as a specific, quote, imagined political community which formed as empires reached their limits of influence and creole cultures, picked up the pieces. Administrative languages changed from the Latin into the regional languages. By the mid to late 1800s to the early 1900s, the transformation of the empire to the nation state were motivated by four key factors. The eradication of space-time by the creation of a uniform language through the mass printing press. Industrial capitalism allowing for increased movement. Increased bureaucratization of the state, which led to larger and more varied metropolitan centers. And the spread of modern education, which created widespread literacy and thus 
Opportunities for State Education and Indoctrination. Across Europe, the remaining monarchies adopted national identification, creating a crisis of sovereign identity, being that the individual, the king or the queen, is claiming that they are the embodiment of the nation while also arguing that their people are the embodiment of the nation. So this crisis had to be resolved. And it ended up being resolved with World War I. Before World War I, we had a Europe that's covered in empires, covered in monarchies. After World War I, almost all of them are gone. So we have the collapse and the creation of modern nationalism after World War I. I don't know that it gets us any clearer than Stalin, but it brings up a lot of questions as to, or tries to answer a lot of questions as to how the specific form of the nation state came out of World War I. And I guess that raises another question for me, though. But do we have to be understanding a nation of people based on, you know, again, we don't have to use Stalin exactly, but I do think that there's something there differently than a nation state necessarily, you know, because I think you could apply those characteristics, um, those criteria that Stalin lays out, and you could probably maybe generally apply that across the board. You know, again, like we can get into how territory sunders people who would share a common language and a common history and things like that. But I think you could use those criteria to identify a nation of people outside of a state framework. It's like, I mean, think about Palestine right now. They have a common territory. I mean, the people living in the diaspora still, I think, to some extent would share at least the history and would, I imagine many of them try to hang on to some of the, um, the culture, but they're not part of the territory. But I still think that you could make an argument there that there's a Palestinian nation, even though they're not represented by a nation state. Does that make sense? It does. And it really becomes thorny because then what's the difference between an ethnicity and a nation? Is there any real difference between them? And then you bring race into the concept of ethnicity and nation, and you're juggling three incredibly complicated concepts without even talking about the nation state, which is a governmental bureaucratic body that is essentially designed to create an order among those three questions. On top of all the economic issues that we're not even touching on with this right. conversation yet. Right. As a, as a general question, I mean, I don't know about what, I think your guys' opinion would be different, but do you think the general public outside of Britain considers Britain a state? Or does it consider England, Scotland, Wales all separate? Because it's a complicated question within Britain, right? You have Britain, you have the United Kingdom, and then you have the actual countries. Because I'll tell you right now, Scottish people, Welsh people, Irish people don't consider themselves British. You know, they consider themselves that. I think English people would be more likely to say they're British and try and encompass everything as British, whereas there'd be a massive pushback in, in the other countries from that. And I just... Not really sure how generally people outside of Britain view that or outside of any of those countries view that. And I think that's a great example of the distinction that I'm talking about of like a Scottish nation ensconced within a British state. Yeah. And I, I think something that to take the Benedict Anderson historical argument, if Great Britain had lost World War I, it's impossible to imagine them continuing to have a monarchy. Every loser right. of that war lost their unifying monarchy, and they split up into their respective nation states or became 
imperialist fodder. All I can think of is how hilarious it would be to do sort of a, a man on the street segment with a bunch of Americans and ask them questions about like uh, British nationality among like Scotland and Wales and like just all the different countries and just ask them their opinions on like who's English and who isn't and like because they have no fucking clue. Like the average person on the street has no clue that like any of those are different countries than England at all, <laughs> let alone if they like saw a person. And like met someone who had those accents, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, you're Irish or whatever." And they'd be like, "What? I'm Scott." They'd be so pissed. Like, can you just imagine? It'd be so great. My friend's a tour guide for a company that caters mostly to to Americans, and he he was right now he's guiding tours and in hikes in Patagonia and in Argentina, and he had some American be like, well, "Like, Scotland and England are the same thing, right? What's, what's the difference?" And he was like, "Fuck me." <laughs> oh my god, dude. Oh, it'd be so good. But I, I still feel like the general American attitude would just be that, like, all of those countries are a lot more agreeably part of the British Empire than than those countries would than would say themselves, you know? I mean, I don't want to rag on the average person, but I don't know how many people sort of think or interrogate very deeply the concept of a nation versus a nation state versus an ethnicity versus a race. I mean, these are hard to consider and they're sort of concepts that are in contradiction with each other and are just sort of propped up by continued economic viability of the structure of the nation and i think that sort of transitions me into just like admitting that the, this concept of the nation state just feels very essentialist as though x y z these things just happen one after the other and then we lead to the nation and every organization of people, every persons, every political group needs their nation in order to represent themselves on the world. But that just feels very off. Maybe that's just true. And I'm willing to be wrong about that. Uh, and I just like to state at the top that uh, I'm extremely critical of the way the nation is understood in this Lenin document, if we ever even get to it. Uh, it's very <laughs> Eurocentric. It takes the definition of the nation as it's developed in this very specific material condition of Europe and tries to make universal statements about it. So I'm sorry, Levi, I just want to clarify with you. Are you speaking to the Stalin text or the Lenin text? I think they both do that. And even in the way you sort of framed it, mm -hmm. you understood it as being based on the historical material reality that these two European men grew up in. Absolutely. No, and I just wanted to clarify that. That's that's all. So I'm no Soviet apologist, so I think it's important we recognize this for what it is. I mean, the Soviet Union, the Marxists, the people that are being constantly attacked left and right, their brothers and sisters are being murdered by the imperial states. They made some mistakes. It's okay. That's what interrogating this document is about. Absolutely. And I think an easy one that we've even talked about already, and it's prescient for how I believe we should frame this whole conversation are the understanding of the Ottoman Empire and the politics of the Levant in this era. Usam Dici, in his work, Age of Coexistence, the Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World, he did a really great interview on the dig that I would recommend, um, argues the West could not comprehend the Arab understanding of, uh, to put the words of this document on it, the nation. Uh, this is how we get terms like, these very Orientalist terms like the pan-Islamist movement floating around, which is used in this document and in the Stalin document, it really denigrates the concept 
of political forms within Islam. And that's basically what ecumenical means. It's the idea that you're holding various churches, various religions in balance with the concept of the government. It's something that's so foreign to Catholicism because that is not the basis of Catholicism, whereas Islam actually has teachings about respecting the other religions of the book. And we've talked about this ad nauseum on our Zionist Empire Palestine series that it's not always perfect. There are obviously confrontations that happen on religious basis in the Levant. We're not saying that, but it's not baked into the religion in the same way that it's really baked into Catholicism. I mean, that is the Crusades. It's about constantly purifying the religion. So that said, the Levant really contained a rich history of ethnic and religious differences among people, especially when compared to the broad strokes of European history. The French, Russian, and English forces both intentionally misconstrued and just did not understand this history when they carved up the territories in their Sykes-Picot Agreement and further discussed it in the League of Nations. So using the research of Elizabeth F. Thompson in her 2020 monograph, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs, I also recommend her interview on guerrilla history. As an example, so when the Syrian Arab Congress of 1920 drafted an ecumenical constitution which explicitly claimed their sovereign would have no religious requirements, the French translated the document to state the opposite, that only Muslims would be tolerated in this nation as justification for their own colonial control over the regime and claiming that they were not ready for democracy yet because they could not differentiate religious freedom from democracy. So that's something that I believe Stalin and Lenin here just did not know. People didn't really understand the difficulties in sort of parsing out what a nation looks like in a region that's so foreign to what we understand the nation to be in 1920 as a European man that's raised in Western Europe on Marxist ideals of the nation. I mean, Marx made these mistakes, obviously, himself. And that's why these documents need to be constantly interrogated. It feels like, in my head, it feels like dialectical. It feels like there's these two definitions of the nation that are always rubbing up against each other because you have, like your definition that you listed here, Nick, historically constituted stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture. It's like a lot of people have a national identity about their nation state and then what they feel about the government and the economic structure of it. And they may take a certain pride in it because it protects their community, but what they feel about their community is very different, but the people that they actually know in their life and what they feel like their, I guess, national identity may be as far as like the culture and where they rub up against like conflict, where it really rubs people the wrong ways when they feel like something happens in that superstructure, uh, the economic and political part, that goes against their cultural part, almost like their spiritual part. And that's what's like really, I guess, um, I'm trying to think of the word. What rubs people the wrong way really is that they're able to exercise such an influence over them. And that's what leads people to be anti-government, anti-hierarchy, anti-just authority in general, because they realize they don't have an influence on that, that part of it, even though it has a, a major influence on the everyday aspects of their lives. And of course, we would suggest mandatory participation just at the community level in a democratically structured superstructure like that. 
And that's why we sound like tankies and just like crazy people, because we say like you actually are you should be forced to participate in your community councils at the local level. And then everything should be run more like a referendum up to the national level, because then you actually would solve all these problems. And, you know, you probably run into run into a lot of Americans saying like, well, why don't you just use the current system that we have that has like local councils and like supposedly democratic institutions and just make people go to them and participate in the actual democracy. And that's when you run up against the the foundations of it, like the actual core structure, which is that it allows property rights to be the the main driver of what is actually driving the policy, as opposed to like human benefit, which is what happens in communist countries, like actually centering what people need and like just the, the human element being the driving force there. Sorry, Nick, go ahead. No, no, I wanted to let you finish. I was just raising my hand to... No, I'll just keep printing on that for, forever if you just let me. But like, it's like nationalism, it, it hurts people because they, they feel the difference in their government and their actual, what they would call their real national spirit. And they just will never arrive at the fact that they need to have democratic control at the community level, even if that would sound scary and authoritarian to be forced to do it because it's the only way to prevent it from falling into the hands of the capitalists, um, especially if your your core structure puts the capitalist rights over your right to life to begin with. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we're talking about like democratic processes and things like that. And I think the problem is, is that in this world, as I mentioned a little bit ago, in many cases, because of Western imperialism, there's not even the space for those things to kind of grow. So I'm wondering if we can, if I can posit some kind of foundation for us to talk about this on. And I don't think we need to come to necessarily like a strict definition of the nation that we could universally apply. But what I would say is that I think we need to understand national self-determination, at least as like the nation being a community of people. And let, it may take place even within the flawed nation state context that has you know arisen today, but it's the reality that a lot of people are living with. But that community of people in whatever context get to decide what they're future looks like free of foreign interference, you know, and I can't speak to how that should happen at all times or anything like that. And we should look to the elements within that movement that adhere to our ideals in working towards a classless stateless society in the future for the elements to kind of align with and glom onto. But we also have to recognize that a certain set of circumstances may not even allow for those forces to kind of grow and flourish. They may just be fighting for their voice on the world stage, which for better or for worse, requires nation state representation at this time. And that's just, again, dealing with the concrete facts and reality on the ground. Yeah, and that, that's extremely true, even in the instance that I told about the concept of Arab democracy being quashed. Right. We have this ecumenical definition of democracy in the nation that fits with the Arab identity of the nation, but it doesn't exist anymore. The Levant mm -hmm. was colonized. That was beaten out of them. Right. I mean, it exists in terms of those ideas, those concepts still exist in the minds and the historical reality of the people that continue to inhabit the Levant. But it didn't come to be a political force in their lives. Instead, they got the mandate system. They were ruled by France. Great Britain, and the Zionists. It wasn't real. And that's why they're asking for a nation, because that's their way of fighting back. And it's easy for us to sort of sit here 
if we were ultra leftists or some sort of fourth international members, whatever you want infants. to call them, <laughs> infants, <laughs> you could say it. that to just squat down anything that looks like this concept of the nation that we're having really a hard time defining because there's a lot about it that we just cannot stomach in terms of its larger theoretical reality. But this podcast isn't really about large theoretical reality questions. It's about historical material reality. Mm-hmm. How do we understand what's actually going on and why these organizations are calling for it and why we can give them critical support, even if theoretically, if we could snap our fingers, that's not the way we would want the world to look. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a good segue into the question and actually getting to Lenin, because he makes clear in his first point that the goal of the communist movement is to move beyond the bourgeois abstraction of equality and toward the only true equalizing mechanism, which is, of course, the abolition of classes. However, Lenin was no utopian or infantile ultra leftist, as you were saying, Levi, as he and again, as he himself might have phrased it. And he recognized that the historic impact of colonialism had elevated the national question to an extreme level of importance, again, given the conditions that flowed out. So he states the following, quote, in conformity with its fundamental task of combating bourgeois democracy and exposing its falseness and hypocrisy, the Communist Party, as the avowed champion of the proletarian struggle to overthrow the bourgeois yoke, must base its policy in the national question, too not on abstract and formal principles, but first, on a precise appraisal of the specific historical situation and primarily of economic conditions. Second, on a clear distinction between the interests of the oppressed classes, of working and exploited people, and the general concept of national interest as a whole, which implies the interests of the ruling class. Third, on an equally clear distinction between the oppressed, dependent, and subject nations and the oppressing, exploiting, and sovereign nations, in order to counter the bourgeois democratic lies that play down this colonial and financial enslavement of the vast majority of the world's population by an insignificant minority of the richest and advanced capitalist countries, a feature characteristic of the era of finance, capital, and imperialism. So, if anybody thinks Lenin isn't still relevant... (laughs) (laughs) But his message here is clear. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to national liberation, A communist line must be ideologically principled, yet adaptable based on ruthless interrogation of a given nation's struggle. So how might we apply Lenin's formulation here to the question of Palestine, especially given that the leading, but by no means sole, political force in Gaza, Hamas, is not a communist party at all? Oh, we better condemn him. (laughs) Easy. We're done. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Trotskyist! That's <laughs> so easy. It's so easy to be a Trot. Well, that's why, why most of the world is, right? They're winning. The compatible ideology. No, it's, it's so convenient. <laughs> if you just like take the hard line uh, by the book, you can just sit and do nothing because no one is doing the thing that you actually suggest. You, know? you don't right. have to support anyone. Purity will get you far. I guess to give an answer to Nick's question, I don't call myself a communist um, in spite of the. You're making I a do lot of friends life. tonight, buddy. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Alienating everybody I can to, to think of me as the academic asshole. Great. Everything I live for. 
But I will admit this is an incredibly important question, if not the question for the left and their critical support of whatever organization or party is representing the tip of the spear in the Palestinian or any liberation movement around the world. So I guess my cop-out answer might be to just look more closely at the Marxist-aligned party or parties within this liberation movement. And in the Palestinian case, this would be, I think, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, uh, an organization we've mentioned a few times in our main series, Palestine, Empire, and Zionism. But this organization itself probably deserves greater attention on our series. We'll get to that on another date. But on October 7th, they released Statement on Al-Aqsa Flood Battle, which couches their resistance in the language of the importance of the nation within a specific appeal to pan-Arabism. And I'm going to read the whole thing as quickly as I can here. It's not very long. We'll put this in the show notes too. And note that the English translation comes from workers.org. I did not bet them. I'm just sort of assuming they did it at least serviceably. So, quote, This is the day when the nature of the struggle and the dignity of the Arab nation are reclaimed. Steadfast mountains from the ranks of the resistance have united in response to the call of Palestine, the call of Al-Quds and Al-Aqsa, during which time essence of the conflict is reclaimed and the honor of the Arab nation is restored. They are determined to achieve a strategic victory over this enemy in a battle that will open the door to return and redefine the history of Palestine and the region. The Popular Front urges our heroic people across Palestine to actively participate in the Al-Aqsa flood battle. Everyone from their respective positions and with the tools they possess should attack the enemy's army and its settlers. Cut off its supply routes, sabotage its vital facilities, and pursue the terrified Zionist invaders in the face of resistance strikes, striking at them on every inch of Palestinian soil. The front emphasizes its call for everyone who bears arms, especially members of the Palestinian Authority security forces, to engage in the battle of the Palestinian people against their enemy and to take the natural position of every free Palestinian fighting for salvation from occupation, achieving the goals and rights of all our people. The timing of the battle, coinciding with the glorious October War, is a call for the sons of the Arab nation and the peoples of the region to recognize their position in the overall conflict with the Zionist enemy and in this particular battle. They should carry out their duties alongside their fighting brothers in revolt in occupied Palestine. So a few things stand out to me in this language. It's mostly around the concept of the nation, but it's also just that the word Hamas is not mentioned once in their entire statement. Um, my guess is that part of this must be because as Palestinians and Arabs in conflict with the genocidal state, which has claimed at least 23,000 souls since October 7th, they don't really have room for political squabbles. But part of that might also be that Hamas is more popular than the PFLP. And so those squabbles, if possible, might only discredit the PFLP as a party. But all this is assuming that they are a principal party of the resistance. The unity of armed Palestine first anti-imperialism is far and away more important than any other political thing they could state at this time. They do not care about Hamas. They care about Palestinian liberation. And that's why we can support the movement. You sure you're not a communist, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> I've been called worse. No, I mean, I... I'd... 
With respect to the Palestine question, I don't have much to add to that. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, Lenin himself advocates in this text looking towards the leading forces on the ground where there is a solidified communist force present. The international community should take their direction from them. Another thing that I think noteworthy at this point in time is that they're not even referencing the struggle against capitalism directly. They do mention, uh, I think, imperialism, but like they're not talking about workers and peasants and class dynamics at this point in time, because that question that can be answered later. That can be figured out when the Palestinians have a government that they institute of themselves, right, where it can actually bloom. And it's not dominated by the Zionist occupation. Like they're doing what they can to survive. The class question, I mean, I'm sure it does exist. It exists in every context, but it is not primary at this moment. I just, I, I hate it when I see like the Zionists be like, hey, these uh, Hamas leaders, they live in like this really fancy house. Uh, therefore, it's okay if we like genocide Palestinians. Like, you know, the class character of the PFLP is like the foremost contradiction there, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amidst the genocide. I mean, what percentage of buildings in Gaza right now are considered uninhabitable or actively have been destroyed? At least 70% have been at least damaged significantly. And that's the last I checked. Right. So some of these people are living in mansions, allegedly. Well, they're gone now. It's done. And they, if they were ever there. And there's bigger questions than how this individual is living or what kind of income they might receive. It's a larger struggle. They don't even have a state. They don't have a people that are constituted in a way that they can interact on the national stage and actually demand their rights in a coherent, consistent way that doesn't involve these sort of Palestine first struggles that get labeled as terrorism. I mean, every act that they take in order to exert their self determination is just labeled as a hate crime as a crime against civilization and you're telling them that they should be mad at the guy that had a mansion before it was destroyed in the last couple months like it's an it's inconceivable it's putrid it's i don't know i I would also add that as i understand it the pflp i mean they've been critical of hamas in the past for other, re- you know, for I imagine numerous reasons, you know, I mean, obviously the PFLP is fighting for a secular Palestine. And I, I think Hamas includes secular elements because they are they're not just strictly Islamist. They've, it's a very complex political organization, but that's a conversation that I think should be led by somebody more of an expert than I am. But Hamas has come to the table in the past with basically the proposition on the table that they would accept what amounts to a two-state solution without essentially recognizing Israel in perpetuity, right? Like they didn't renounce their historic claims to their land, but they essentially said, look, you know, we'll allow this situation to exist if you grant us a state for some point in time. And the PFLP actually said, no, like we're not renouncing shit. We're not giving back anything. You know what I mean? Like all of Palestine is ours. So the point is, is that (laughs) <laughs> the PFLP might be more radical than Hamas on that question, you know, um, but even where their differences are, you know, where their differences may have been in the past, like you see pictures of them shaking hands and fighting like brothers. So that's just where they're at right now. And this is I mean, this is honestly 
we should look at probably something maybe at a different point that's less of a layup than this. Because if you can't get on board with this, then I don't know what the fuck you're doing calling yourself a communist or a leftist or whatever you're doing listening to this podcast right now. Hopefully you're learning if you're not quite there yet. But <laughs> I just feel like this is just even basic progressive stuff. Like if you're just a progressive at any level, like these are like some basic concepts you should stand up for. And then I'm always surprised at people, people who call themselves progressives and then the things they object to. And then just like, don't people tell I mean, even more, even more basic than that. I mean, I think if you have any type of fucking humanity, you should be on this side. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know, to the point about setting aside their differences in this moment. So I'm going to release this on the podcast. It might actually come out before this episode even comes out. But I have that podcast that I work with uh, the PSL Pittsburgh branch on Pittsburgh Liberation Radio. And last night I interviewed two Palestinian Americans and we had a really great conversation. I mean, as great as it can be when they're telling me about how they've both lost over 20 family members in fucking Gaza. But they talked about how Islam, you know, manifests within their day to day lives, you know. And I think to Levi, to your earlier points, you know, it's something that we don't really understand as like a how it could influence like a political movement outside of the negative ways in which Christianity influences our political movements and not the, the construction of our nation states here. You know, it, it is a very different thing. But one of the guys was telling me about how even in his like friend group, you know, there's people that wear the, he, in his words, he said, oh, there's people that wear the red bandana. There's some that wear the green bandana. There's some that wear the black <laughs> bandana. You know, they come from all different, you know, places and political things, but we can all talk. And he goes, and you can even extend that out to the, the freedom fighters, you know, and he goes, you can see that when it's time for prayer, they take off their bandanas, whatever color that they are. And they kneel down and they say their daily prayer. So I, 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 I just don't think that we understand enough the full dynamics of this to even really adequately begin to comment and analyze or let alone dictate how these people should be fighting back. The only thing we should be doing is standing out in the street and screaming that the genocide must end. And whoever's fighting for that on the ground deserves our support. And then we'll figure out the rest later. <laughs> They'll figure out the rest later and we'll figure out which, which faction to align with once they have the space to breathe. And I think to Mike's point, it's that mental block, that indoctrination that we have in the West since the war on terror or going back before that, this Orientalist idea, this imperialist idea that these brown people, these radical Islamists, are incapable of conceiving of the world in a way that can be open and functional and provide that space for them. And it's not our place to say that's wrong. If they want it to have Islamic features, who's to say that that's not a good thing? I think one of the, sorry, just one of the easiest tells about the nationalist question is like, straight lines on a map they just piss me off so bad like if you see straight lines on a map that is the easiest sign of colonization right there and until those are gone we have not answered the nationalist question significantly like or adequately 
Talking about Africa, maybe. Just Dude, anywhere. <laughs> fucking <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah, even like, like the one side of Syria is just like a diagonal line. It's like, okay, like what the fuck? That's literally like that meme. It's like, white man has been here. How can you tell? Straight lines on a fucking map, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, let's get back into it. In points five and six of the theses, Lennon raises crucial points for our present moment. In point five, Lenin states that the global bourgeoisie is arraying itself against the Soviet Russian Republic, which learned through the bitter experience of the Russian Civil War. Oh, which was learned through the bitter experience of the Russian Civil War. The countervailing force, in Lenin's view, was the Soviet movement. And that's with a small s, and you can read that as the Workers' Council movement by the advanced proletarian formations in the so-called developed world and the national liberation movements in the colonies and among the oppressed nationalities. The opening line to point six points to a need to not, quote, confine oneself to a bare recognition or proclamation of the need for closer union between the working people of the various nations. A policy must be pursued that will achieve the closest alliance with Soviet Russia of all national and colonial liberation movements, end quote. So my questions to you all are, and we can take these one at a time if need be, what, if any, were the historical and practical pitfalls of centering Soviet Russia, and by inevitable extension, the USSR, as the nexus for global communist and national liberation struggles. And we're going to get the benefit of hindsight here that Lenin did not have at the moment. So assuming he was operating in the best faith when writing this. Yeah, and that's the that's sort of the constant struggle is you want to give them the best faith interpretation, but there are lots of mistakes made. And we've never really shied away from exposing those mistakes because that's how left movements have to grow because that's how we be better. Right. If we're not learning from our defeats, we're definitely not learning from our victories. What are there, like three of those? (laughs) So we need to learn from the defeats. And I know we said we wanted to get away from the state of Israel a little bit here, but I think it's just, it's what I know. So it's a really easy example to pull. And in the founding of the state of Israel, the Soviet Union got things wrong. And I think it was because of this USSR Russian centric view. They encouraged the communist party of the state of Israel to align with the Histrodot and lend their connections to the labor Zionists. And without this crucial Soviet intervention, the labor Zionists didn't get weapons from the Soviet Union and perhaps wouldn't have won the first Arab-Israeli war. This isn't even mentioning the fact that the Soviet Union supported UN Resolution 181. They really pushed it over the goal line. Mm -hmm. And they did that, as we stated in our episode where we cover all of this, because they really believed that the Zionist movement could be manipulated into becoming a communist-aligned movement, that it would grow, that it would support a larger democratic or Soviet movement in the Levant. The fact is that didn't happen. Yep. It was the wrong horse they bet on, and they didn't make that mistake twice, at least not there. No, and I think it's important we recognize it as a mistake, and I think that's also important why we make the distinction when we talk about the initial support for the state of Israel by the U.S. and the USSR that those levels of support did come for very different reasons. And we can acknowledge that while also acknowledging that it was a historical failure, especially for the Palestinian people and the region broadly. Yeah, exactly. And it, I think, ties back to this notion of the nation. 
because the state of Israel had a real nationalist concept that could be easily understood. I think as we put it, they were speaking the language of the European state. Mm -hmm. Whereas the oppressed peoples of the Arab ethnicity, nationality, whatever they would have been understood as, hadn't quite developed that notion of the state in the same way. Especially not the Palestinians. Because they had no room to. They weren't allowed to breathe that way. Steve, Mike, before I jump in, do you guys have anything? Go ahead. So, I mean, I think that is a good, like, time period to pick out that would have not been too long after Lenin's death and the formulation put forward in this. Um, I'm going to take an even longer, broader view on this. And while I agree with you wholeheartedly, I think there's a couple of problems with centering the USSR as much support and as much good as it did. I mean, I think you can, one, look to it as kind of a sore point between the USSR and China that ultimately led in some ways because of political differences and I think a feeling of being patronized and talked down to a little bit by the Chinese communists that led to like the Sino-Soviet split. And then I would also add that I think once the USSR fell... The global communist movement lost its anchor in a lot of ways. And I think that set us back two decades, at least. You know, I think we're starting to revive. But I mean, how far we got set back has still yet to be realized because we don't have an international communist pull. We definitely need that. I don't know that we need it in the same way centered around the same nation, centered around a single nation, excuse me. And I understand why they did it. Like, because they had developed the strongest nation state. It's the most successful socialist, example, Right, exactly. But in a different world, would we do it? In a new world, would we do it the same way exactly? You know, like there is no recreating the USSR. That's not the world we're going to live in in the future. That can't happen again. So how do we move forward from here? And I think that segues into my next question, because again, we are living to state the obvious, in a world without the USSR. And that is extremely, and I feel strongly that that is extremely, extremely unfortunate. Okay. On a global international communist movement level, and just on a humanitarian level for the people that live in the former socialist republics, you know? So we have to understand that Lenin was talking about this burgeoning socialist center, and that's gone now. So how can we take what he's talking about here and apply it to our own anti-imperialist struggle, given that we don't have a common turn centered in the USSR and we don't even have a strong U.S. Communist Party yet? Because again, he's speaking to the Communist International from this center saying, hey, here's something you can do. Go and apply these theses because these are broad guidelines to a given national context and figure out how you can best support that struggle. But we don't have that epicenter. Like China's not acting as that. And I don't fault them for that necessarily here, but that's not what they are. It's so wild to me because I think often like it doesn't translate this way, but I see the word Soviet and it makes me think how close it is to the word society. Like it's very, just a couple letters off. And I think how cool it would have been if like, Americans just had been cognizant enough to translate it that way instead of being intimidated by the word Soviet. If they had just thought for a minute and say, well, what are they actually doing over there with their society? Um, and it translates 
translates to to speak. So it's not even the same thing. But it just makes me wonder sometimes if if Americans had just been so indoctrinated and propagandized against anything Russian that they weren't even willing to like look at a good method when it had stared them in the face, as opposed to like um, because that is the the contradiction I keep running up against now is like how do you get people who are so disillusioned and so fed up with everything that's going on around them now that they want to go live in the woods and start like an intentional community or a homestead or something and get them to take that next step and say, well, what if we aligned all of our intentional communities and homesteads since we all seem to be along the same page here, since we all seem to be fed up with capitalist modernity? uh, What if we all just took back the power and aligned all those groups and then put some force behind it, put some actual teeth behind that? Oh, shit, it would look like a communist nation state. It would look like the Soviet fucking Union. And I again, see why China doesn't do it, because they saw the Soviet Union's example. They say you can't export communism because the West doesn't want it. They want to fail. They love being in their misery and they love thinking that they know better than everyone else, even though it's blatantly not working for them. They love just running into the wall over and over again and thinking that they know best. Um, so we're just not even going to try. We're going to let them burn themselves out. And then I guess they'll pick up the ashes when the West is done. But it's just as unfortunate in the meantime. It's just, and that's what we keep running up against. It's like, how do you get people to understand that next step and stop being afraid of the, the thing that actually works just because they've been propagandized for so long? Yeah, I mean, I'm having a really hard time thinking about this in concrete terms because what you're asking is, as Mike sort of phrased it, is what system do we imagine being created that would help change the most minds? in the quickest amount of time so that we don't destroy the planet that we're living on. And that's something we're constantly struggling with. I mean, that's part of what this podcast is created for. That's what a lot of our political activity is centered around is just trying to convince people that something better exists out there. Even if we don't, we are not capable of telling you the exact contours of it. You know, what we're offering is I guess you could dismiss it as the utopian notion that we can all together create something better, even if we don't know exactly what we're creating before its birth. And that's why I think the founders of the Soviet Union, somebody like Lenin, even Stalin, you know, all of the bad guys deserve all of that slack that they get because they were trying to do that. We're criticizing what they came up with as their definition of the nation but they're sitting here. That's what these theses are. They're actually arguing over whether or not this works. Yeah. And they're, try- they're advocating going out and testing it. And not only that, provably created a system that responds to these larger, like, national level crises better than the free market, than just the, the random ad hoc will of entrepreneurs uh, is ever able to. And the only reason people are unwilling to see that example in real time is because they're indoctrinated against it. Because even like the financial press, they know that China is beating the shit out of the U.S. They know that the ruble is not rubble. They will tell you, like, they will tell you that central planning works a lot better than the capitalist free markets are working right now. But ask American citizens and they will have no idea. Just like those man on the street videos about Britain would be so funny. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess ultimately... What I'm getting at here, and it's not a solution, but it's just, as I see it, kind of like a caution and a warning, is that in the absence of a strong, real international movement to point to, our job becomes even more difficult, especially in the imperial core. Because again, we have the easy path of just beckoning towards nationalism, right? And then we get into, in our context, 
the Pat Sock shit and everything like that, you know? So at the same time, while we here have to be grounded in real concrete conditions, I think it's especially important for us to also be a little bit utopian because we cannot just like, we cannot like appeal to the nationalism of the United States, you know, black nationalism, the nationalism of indigenous nations. I'm all good with that. I'm not going to speak against that, but the nationalism that has arisen and is authored by, again, the United States, like constitution and all that propaganda and bullshit that goes into it. We cannot imbibe into that. But at the flip side, again, we have no international concrete example to point to at this moment in time. So it's just very, it's, it's, I'm just trying to say our job is very difficult. We have to be very principled at all times. And again, this is why we have to highlight us imperialism as the prime contradiction. We have to eliminate that. And then it's almost like once that's gone, we're going to have a whole new set of conditions to deal with that. We're going to have to be ready to evaluate and respond to. And that feels like a cop out, but I don't know what else. I don't know what else to say. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> I just I see the reasons that the Pat Sox and the Republicans both align with like the Russia and China and Iran uh, multipolarity. And it's just funny to me because, to be honest, I just think it's a lot more realistic that those three countries and the anti-imperialist bloc in general, BRICS, is going to overturn the U.S imperial uh, domination scheme with the military and all of its financial oligarchs, I think that's a lot more realistic than thinking that those countries are going to overturn uh, gay people in the U.S., that they're just going to run <laughs> tanks over all the queer people. like Because that's what they fucking think. They think that they're just going to get rid of all the drag queen story hours. It's like, you guys are on the wrong track. But like, whatever, Like we're still going to get what we want because we know what those countries are really after. They don't give a shit about gay people. They don't give a fuck. They play cultures wars for the all the culture war shit for the same reason the ruling class here in the U.S. plays the culture war shit is just to get people on their side for their financial agenda so they can actually pass some policy that makes them rich. And if honestly, like the stuff that would make the people, the, the oligarchs in Russia, Iran and China, the richest would be the least beneficial for the people in Russia. So it's like it's Absolutely. weird. Like It does sound campus, but what is good for the ruling class in those anti-imperialist countries is bad for the ruling class in America. So you should be kind of rooting for that because divide and conquer works like the ruling class here proves it well and i think you know the the multipolarity point is a good thing because i think that and i think i said this in the group chat the other day that is a concrete reality that we're dealing with and it's not that multipolarity is a good in that it's an i mean it's a good but not in that it's an end all be all good yeah it's not the end it's right it's just that this is the logical impending next step that is going to open up, hopefully open up the space for something new to emerge and be birthed. And we're going to have to deal with that when it comes. And most importantly, you can say that that's not desirable. You can say that it would be much better to have just a working class movement that is opposing all the imperialisms, but then it is on you to start building that. Start building like the, the 18th international, whatever number we're on at this point, like go ahead, bro. I'm waiting for you. But like so far, the BRICS yeah. Alliance is the thing doing it right now. But and to Lenin's point, though, because he says explicitly that we can't distill this down into workers of the world unite when there's colonial people that are oppressed. And then we have layers of chauvinism and nationalism that get get built upon that. It's not as easy as just saying workers of the world unite. OK, like I, I've said on a previous podcast before, go tell a worker in Palestine 
in Gaza that Hamas is not their friend mm-hmm. and see if they're going to get you to sign on to your little fucking Trotskyist organization. Yeah. <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> so, again, that that's going to open up the space and then we have to deal with it from there. And I think the contradiction, the analysis that we here need to be grounded in is that U.S. imperialism prevents the national self-determination of people abroad and the self-determination of people right here within the boundaries of the United States. Once that begins to degenerate, we hold our principles and we adapt our strategies from there. But until that's gone, as a citizen of the U.S., that's what I'm going to be focused on. To drag this back a little bit to the concept of imagination and what we're working for, and since it sounds like the Trotskyists taking another beating in our conversation They're living in my head man it's not the liberals <laughs> any well it's still the liberals but it's it's the ultra leftists and the chauvinists at the same time these trotskyists god get out of my head <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's almost as though they just like have this thing that they know is perfect that they're capable of replicating they take it it's like a slide that they just lay over everything it's something that always tinges every single thing they look at to the point where they don't even recognize the material conditions that have led to what is happening on the ground. So they're just these complete idealistic, mostly academically minded from what I've run into people that are incredibly intelligent at breaking down these theories, but they don't go beyond to thinking about how it might need to be adapted for reality. And it just always reminds me of the Marxist quotation in chapter seven, in Capital, where he writes, a spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee put a shame, many an architect in the construction of her cells. But what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is this, that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality. I mean, we are human beings. We don't need to constantly bow down to ideas and concepts that were created by somebody else in order to justify our actions. We're capable of imagining these cells in a different way instead of building cells around our own mind. And it just feels when you talk to these neoliberals, uh, Pat Sox, they're really coming back to this idea of the nation as it's been pre-structed. Mm-hmm. And they keep taking that and pushing it onto a situation rather than looking at the situation and trying to understand how the nation could itself be reconstructed to better the people that are dealing with those material conditions. And that's using the term nation in as broad a way as possible. Because that's why it's hard for us to define these things is because we don't come here with set definitions and then push them on to concepts. We do the opposite. And that's what makes these sort of right wing and ultra leftist positions so much easier to write about and regurgitate because it's the same thing over and over again. You're producing the same cell over and over again. Isn't it kind of funny that that's what aligns the neoliberals, the Pat Sox, and then even the ultra leftists who oppose Russian and Chinese imperialism is that they all just end up being pro-America at the end of it. Like whether whatever their theory is that they're citing, their prescriptions are all the same, which is that the U.S. should get its agenda. You know what I mean? Like even the Pat Sox who claim that they're like anti-America and they want Russia and China to win or whatever, they still wave the American flag. Like they want American culture to prevail in some way. And they think the American government stands in the way of that. But like they're not meaningfully opposed to the American government or like the American military industrial complex in any way. And the neoliberals, when they 
claim to oppose imperialism, like the vouchers of the world. It's like they give it away. They really give the game away because they emotionally very obviously are pro-America. Whatever they say about like being progressive and standing for marginalized people, they end up saying like things like anarcho-natoism or whatever. Like they, they're just so fucking dumb. <laughs> so about it. Like, and then the neoliberals, I don't even have to address them. Like they just are obvious NATO stance. Like they don't even hide it. So it's like they all end up being just like neocons in the end. And that's where we get to stand apart from them because we want the actual, the actual nations of the world to be dictated by the people who live there. And we don't want the U S to be enforcing its will and imposing itself upon everyone else, which is the only thing that it's doing with that, those 900 military bases. And it's like, until that is gone, until the straight lines are gone, until all those like artificially drawn nations and borders by the British and Americans are gone. Yeah. None of that's just going to be resolved. We're the only ones saying it. The only ones. That's why it feels so good. But like, it, I just keep on. What is that? Like, I think it was an Althusser quote, where he's like, "It's it's bad for everyone, but me and my friends, because we are doing historical materialism." And that's what it feels like. We're the only people just saying the very obvious truth. Well, I will say, and I want to start to look to maybe wrap up here. And I think almost I could envision us doing a podcast where we listen to this and come back and do a reflection and maybe just some general thoughts on nationalism um, after we listen to ourselves sound like idiots for a little bit. You know what I mean? And come back and, and reflect and change what we might say. But I do think that in this moment right now, we have a critical and amazing opportunity to actually forward the consciousness of a lot of people with the Palestine genocide going on right now. Um, and I'm getting away from the text a little bit, but to put it on my idea that again here, as it relates to this whole idea of national self-determination across the globe, we need to be focused on what's going on at home. I mean, the U.S. government is being exposed on a global scale, and I am personally seeing more and more people come out to the streets. And now that the U.S. is bombing Yemen, you're seeing the connections, I think, start to really take hold. So I'm really looking forward, I think, to that. I mean, obviously, this I don't want to sound like I'm like celebrating what's going on because it's obviously tragedy, but dealing with this reality and trying to position ourselves to take a movement forward into the future, I'm optimistic for where it can potentially go. We're never going to get all these wackos on our side here, but I think more and more people are seeing what's going on and what the contradiction that we have, what the contradiction is that we need to be focusing on right here, right now. To build on that and to draw what Mike was saying, that these things need to be sort of torn down. The foot needs to be taken off the neck before we can think of new ideas or new structures. I guess I'd like to push back on that a little bit because these new ideas, these new structures, these new alliances are being formed as we speak. Mm -hmm. To your point, people are actively thinking about how they want the world to look different. And a lot of people aren't there yet. A lot of people will never get there. And I'm not saying that we're here. We have the answers. I think the exact opposite. We're all just trying to invite people to imagine, to think of how we want this world to look once that boot is removed. But we're building it. Building it is what removes the pressure. Like you said, these people are wearing their different colored bandanas, but they're taking them off 
when they're praying or when they're in this resistance. These differences don't seem very big. PFLP is not attacking Hamas right now as much as they disagree with them. They're calling for all Palestinians to unite. And I guess to take a letter from them, we need to think about how this whole movement needs to unite. And it would be nice if we had some sort of international that could provide direction. But it really feels like this anti-Israel-Palestinian movement is providing a center. It's providing something for people to look to and to understand and to use as a way to understand other politicians and the people that they thought had answers are really giving them the same line. It's the, the mask off. And they're seeing that all they're offering them is a, the same old definition of the nation that requires the mass assassination and genocide of another people. And that's not what they want anymore. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, again, I'm going to try to draw on some organizing experience here because we're working with a lot of people in like, again, the Pittsburgh Solidarity Movement, which is fucking beautiful. It's bringing in people of different walks of life in different political stages of their life as well. There's still some people that still hold on to these ideals of America, you know, and people come in and say these things. And you don't want to push them away because at the same time, they're simultaneously making this connection. Like somebody made this point that like, hey, you know, we're spending all this money that, you know, to go bomb Palestinians, but we don't have any care for like, you know, the homeless and the mental health thing, you know, and then you meet somebody like, and obviously that, that sounds, that sounds so obvious and an easy thing for us, you know, but not everybody's there right now, but Mm. this person's coming in in good faith wanting to stand on the right side of humanity and you can pull them into a movement, you know, and I think the crucial thing out of this moment, and I said this to somebody the other day, was like, the crucial thing is that all these connections, all these things continue on here because there will be a free Palestine. I mean, there's going to be a ceasefire. There's going to be a free Palestine someday, you know, but I said to them, I said, but as long as U.S. imperialism still exists, Gaza is going to happen again somewhere else. So all of this energy, all this movement needs to carry into permanent political activism, permanent revolution, to give a nod to our little Trotskyists. (laughs) 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 You know what I mean? But I don't know. I am finding optimism amidst the horror and chaos as easy as it is for me to sit here in my fucking comfy office and say that. Yeah, it is. I don't know. It it does make me wonder how Israel is going to continue to exist after this, especially after now going through like the criminal court proceedings. I don't know. I guess the only way that like I see most Americans still supporting Israel is just they're, just, they're not paying attention at all whatsoever. Because like, as you can see, like the, the U.S. did not even broadcast the South African, like the prosecution side. They only broadcasted Israel's defense in the genocide court which says everything you need to know about American media. Yeah, the way that Americans just think they're not propagandized. I'm just thankful that the international community exists and that there are so many people who are outside of this Western media bubble and see reality for what it is and that they are increasingly getting their way. Like the U.S. is increasingly unable to beat Afghanistan or Iraq and therefore the rest of the world is starting to see that this really is a paper tiger. That for whatever it claims to have, as far as like a hold on the world, 
U.S. imperialism is set to crumble as soon as people say no, and the world is increasingly saying no, and I'd love to see it. It just feels so good. It does feel good. There is something to be said that we need to constantly keep a longer time frame in mind, that as long as we're continuing to struggle, it's continuing to grow. And that's something that in teaching history is always so difficult to get across, that learning history is not actually about learning things, about things that are dead or that are over. You're actually learning about what is happening now. Like, it's really easy for us to look back on, uh, as a pretty easy example, you know, the crushing of the French Revolution by Napoleon. We have movies about it. We have TV series. We have, I don't know how many History Channel documentaries about it. But the French Revolution's not over. I mean, it's only barely begun. Little Joe and Lie over there, no? Right, or we're talking about this unipolar world. And I think we sort of fall into the trap of thinking how it's always existed. I mean, this unipolar world has existed since 1990, 1989. Yeah, and it's already declining. It's going away. <laughs> we're in the process of the decline. Like, again, like the, 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 the break of empire is not a discrete event. We're right. in the process of it. Sorry to interrupt you. But no, that's, it. that's exactly the point. We're in a process of decline and potential rebirth. So we don't know where we're at in terms of world history until things have been settled. And I guess what I'm arguing is they're never actually settled. Things are always changing and always evolving. Always, I mean, that's the base definition of what a revolution is. It's about change. It's not necessarily about things changing radically. It's about the constant turn. I mean, that's why we use the term revolution to talk about a, an object moving through space. Yeah. It's always happening. We don't understand where it's beginning or ending because it's always going on. And if I could, I think that's why it's very important because you just, you mentioned recognizing that you're part of history. I think that's what is so absolutely fucking beautiful about communist, socialist, leftist, whatever you want to call it, but we're engaging with this theory, we're engaging with this tradition, and we're trying to continue on and adapt and revise and make better this tradition because we have our heroes, we have our heroic movements, and we're part of something that has you know, been there and done it, and we want to do it again, and we want to do it better. And that's what's so fucking amazing about it. You know, we're part of history. We're part of the righteous struggle of history if we're trying to carry on this legacy. And for me personally, like if I can play a small part in that, that's enough for me. You know, <laughs> that's enough for me. I want to emphasize that like that passing of the torch, that carrying it on, that requires legitimate, deep human connection, pulling people in talking to them, getting them to buy into what you're saying as a human fucking being and getting them to trust you. You know, if you can do that with a few people in your life and pull them into this, or, you know, even in like a passing moment, bring them into this movement and have them kind of take up that torch, then man, you've fucking done something. And I'm not trying to get all romantic and sappy, but like, honest to God, like that's like what is giving me fucking inspiration right now. No, it's the it's by far the best thing about finding just the comrade community because you really yeah. feel like you have joined yes. something that even if like like it doesn't matter if I died tomorrow like I at least know that I found 
the anti-imperialist line, and I took the right stance on these seemingly so mysterious and complicated issues around the world and everything. And it's like, it's not that complicated at all. You just have to listen to the people who have actually been oppressed. And there is one single line, a through line of all these indigenous and just like actual human struggles to fight against the imposing and unnatural authority that wants you to just work for the benefit of people who want to absolutely do nothing but dominate you. And it's, it's just that one struggle. It has always been going on. And it will continue to go on. All, all we can do in this life with our actions is to recognize what that struggle is and join it in whatever way we can. And like, I'm not saying it's revolutionary to sit behind a microphone, but like, it definitely helps to talk to people, like you're saying, Nick, on a human level and get them to realize that like communists are not a bunch of scary people who want to take away your toothbrush and your baby. Like they just want to, they want to help you realize what it is that we should all be doing and unify in a way that actually will make some kind of difference and isn't just like, homesteading and taking care about taking care of you and your individual family you, and loved just ones. Like, you. it's not yeah. just about you it is a human thing yeah and that's in complete contradiction to the death drive of what we're seeing happen to the imperialist power i mean a serious civilization does not have a samson option which is israel's concept that if they ever see their state about to fall they're willing to create a nuclear holocaust in order to end civilization. Obviously, we don't know that that's the actual modus operandi of Israel, but it can easily be placed on just the concept of nuclear proliferation or the fact that fossil fuel industries are more than happy to destroy the planet death by continuing to do exactly what they're doing. They're on a death drive and the anti-imperialist movement, the left, whatever you want to call it, is actually trying to fight for life. And I guess that's what makes it that much more severe in the time that we're living in because we feel that death drive on a day-to-day basis. We see the world actually crumbling in ways that it may not be capable of recovering from, uh, just on a humane, sustainable, on-this-planet issue. But it still it gives me hope. People are starting to see that. They're saying that. These conversations are actually happening in ways that, honestly, I, I don't think they were happening, even in radical spaces, nearly as forcefully in the last 40 years. We're going to look back on the Palestinian struggle as the moment that shook the world and woke everybody up. I fucking know that. I know it in my heart. Joe Biden the best president of the United States. <laughs> Joe Biden, wake up. <laughs> wake up, Joe Biden. <laughs> you have one last mission. That's right. Take down the American empire from within. <laughs> Just the fact that the Samson doctrine or Samson protocol or whatever it is exists, that's like the pinnacle. That is like the, just putting it in writing, like saying the quiet part out loud. Because that seems to be like what everybody knows about the U.S. is that before anybody would allow the U.S. to be taken over, the president would hit the button and just like nuke the whole fucking world because capitalism would rather take its ball, meaning the entire world, and go home rather than let anybody like create some kind of like equitable system, like some kind of alternative. Which is funny. Like I feel like that's also like a viral TikTok that could happen among conspiracy theorists. Just point out the fact that like only the West has this. Like 
Russia and China, despite being nuclear powers, do not have any kind of doctrines where if they just get attacked, they're going to blow up the entire world. Unless they also get like nuclear attack. Like they don't have this kind of thing where you could just like invade them. And, like, oh, we're just going to, we feel like blowing up the entire world rather than just like, I don't yeah. know, surrendering. Like that only exists in these fucking death drive capitalist nations. It's, it's mind blowing. Well, here's to the uh, fight against that growing and blossoming and i hope to see everybody listening out on the streets hopefully you're doing what you can don't take too much on do a small part help somebody out help your neighbor out go out to a palestine rally get started meet some people that you can be comrades with for the rest of your life it starts really small but again to go back to comrade stalin it's quantity and equality (laughs) i feel like the least you can do in today's day and age, just be willing to have the conversation that this is a genocide, even if it's at the risk of your job. You know, that's that's the most Stalinist thing you can do today in America. <laughs> yeah. In a world of Bidenists, be a Stalinist. What would the Bidenist position be? That's like claiming that he has any ideological rudder. <laughs> no, nothing's happening, Jack. <laughs> nothing's happening, Jack. Uh, <laughs> Israel has a right to defend itself, Jack. Right to exist in perpetuity. All right, boys, I'm starting to get goofy and I got to take a leak. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think Steve's on his way over here to have some more beers with me. Oh, nice. So let's leave it there. This was a fucking fun conversation, as always. Love doing this shit with you guys. And again, we're not making any pretensions as to like, hey, we know all this stuff. But what I really love about it is that it feels like we're learning together as we go through it. And again, when we listen to this, we're probably going to be like, oh, God, I should have said this and should have said that. But that's just part of learning. That's how it goes. And that's what we're here to do. So, Mike, thanks for joining us as always, buddy. We appreciate your insight and the fun we have with you all the time, man. Thank you, guys. Always fun. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. For everybody listening, um, thank you for tuning in. Again, please, you know, if you can go and follow our social media pages as God, I hate, I hate even saying that right now, you know, like subscribe, like my social media page. Fuck you. Go out to the street and make your voice heard and demand a ceasefire in a free Palestine. That's what I want you to do more than anything. But again, we do thank you for tuning in and giving us some of your time. We'll talk to y'all soon. Free Palestine. Adios, paisanos. See what you're made of.